Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. You know, we haven't looked at exactly what the processes or the, the needs are entirely, uh, but Canada will be there uh, to support uh, Indigenous communities as we uh, discover the extent of this trauma and trying to try to, to give opportunities for families and communities to heal. Well, that, of course, uh, was the prime minister speaking earlier today uh, on this conversation. I think a lot of Canadians uh, are having right now and trying to understand and comprehend uh, the full extent to which children died at Canada's residential schools. And unfortunately, I think there's been more of a reckoning as of late in this country with this chapter of our history and understanding how and why these residential schools came about, the impact it had on those who were stripped away from their families, sent off to these schools, victims of abuse in many cases, and the lasting trauma that created, and obviously for their families as well. You know, just imagine the trauma on on any parent, of having the state show up at your door and taking away your children, sending them off to some school. And then, of course, the, the horrors of these kind of outcomes. Children dying at these schools children being buried at these schools. So the uh, discovery of what appears to be uh, the graves of 215 children at a former residential school in Kamloops has obviously uh, you know, ripped this whole issue back wide open, which maybe it needed to be. Right? This is something that, you know, as much as we've come to address the residential school issue, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and all of that. This is one side of it that maybe we've kind of shot away from. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission didn't really have the opportunity uh, to do a full documentation of how many children died in residential schools, who they were, to put some names alongside all of this to ensure that, that these children are remembered. So we have some idea of how many deaths we're talking about, but there's so much uh, we still don't know. And these 215 apparent graves at this Kamloops school, that's certainly more than had been documented that died at this school. Now, when we look back, uh, certainly that period, the late 19th century, early 20th century, children did die uh, of things that they just don't die of today. But that doesn't really begin to explain the realities of these schools. Why did children die there? How was all of this dealt with? Really important piece of journalism uh, from over the weekend at National Post, nationalpost.com, taking a deep dive into this issue. What the death rates were at these schools, why they were so high, and how deaths were handled. Uh, Joining us to talk more about it is the uh, author of this piece, Tristan Hopper, uh, columnist, journalist with the National Post, Post nationalpost.com. Tristan, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. 
You know, and, and I've heard this come up, this idea that, you know, I mean, look, unfortunately, at this time, kids did die of diseases that, that aren't fatal anymore. Uh, you know, these, these kinds of things did happen at the time. But when we try to understand what was going on specifically at these schools, wh- where do you go with a question like that? This is something, and I think it is important to acknowledge that, because I've heard that as well, uh, people saying, well, you know, kids died in larger, you know, I got the strap at school, how was this any different? Uh, so this is this is a question that specifically, and I didn't actually have to do a lot of original reporting. A lot of the documentation on this is in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, final report. And it's actually, it's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty just straight-ahead document. This is just sort of, you know, trying to, from as unemotional a standpoint as possible, just sort of look into what happened and when and where. Um, so this is something they looked into, and they were saying as late as the 1950s, uh, the death rate in uh, Indian residential schools was five times higher than the general death rate. So, yes, children um, you died of tuberculosis. I mean, anybody who's 70-plus um, lost classmates, uh, from diseases that children just don't die of. But the death rate was just so much higher. And within living memory, I mean, as late as the 1950s, uh, 1940s, and it was just off the charts at the beginning. Uh, so when the system was first set up in the 1880s, 1890s, um, you actually had quite openly uh, federal officials saying, we need to do this as cheaply as possible, up to and including not having adequate food. Like there was, uh, and this is this is coming directly from reports um, within Ottawa archives. Uh, I mean, actually, people who worked for the Department of Indian Affairs were saying the children aren't getting enough food, they're not getting enough medical care, and that is raising the death rate. Um, so, yeah, it's um, the death rate was was far higher uh, than it was for uh, you know any comparable demographic, and particularly in the beginning. I mean, you you did have. Uh, this was not across the board, but you did have, particularly in the prairies, you had schools uh, which had annual death rates of 4 to 5%, uh, which means that every 20 students sent to that school, uh, one of them is dying each year. Right, which which is quite shocking. So even when it came to, to diseases that were a little more prevalent or, or common at the time, where kids did die from, I mean, diseases like tuberculosis, when it came to the conditions at these schools, how did it make those threats that already existed in that era even worse? Oh yeah, because you you basically had uh, yeah you had you had populations that uh, that were more susceptible to disease uh, to disease. In some instances, you had you know indigenous children. It, would, it wasn't too far removed from contact. You just had a much more vulnerable disease, and then you add in malnutrition on top of that and then you added really bad conditions and again this is something that's you know well documented um yeah, an inspector would come by and say uh you know we need an infirmary we need uh, less crowded dormitories we need to fix drainage there's too many mosquitoes in the area like there's this place is a disease trap and then there would be a request made for money um and then that would be rejected by the department of indian affairs so that's that's one thing that does come up to a shocking degree in a lot of the original primary sources relating to the Indian residential school system is just minor expenses would be rejected. Um, there's one I cite in the story uh, where it says a child has died at school and his parents want him home to be buried. And they receive a terse letter that says, uh, sorry, we don't have the money. You know, it, it's, it's not, um, it's too expensive to ship children home. So we're just going to bury them on site. You know, and, and even things that, that, 
could have been dealt with at the time. I mean, one of the pieces, or one of the examples you said in your piece is, uh, you know, a student who, who ended up dying uh, days after stepping on a nail. Um, you know, and even in the context of the day, that's something that, that shouldn't have had to happen. So it, it feels like there was that, that indifference that led to the lack of proper medical care that led to preventable tragedies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just as you called, I was looking through uh, primary sources about um, there was a TV outbreak at uh, one particular school. And you're reading. So in the early days, there was almost no supervision whatsoever. I mean, you could get away. They, they weren't even recording the names of children who died. Uh, so that changed a bit. I mean, in the 1930s, 1940s, you would, you would have to fill out a form if uh, a child died at residential school. So I'm looking through some of these forms, which we still have. And it would be something, the principal saying, oh, yeah, he started to, you know, look sick and listless. So we sent him to bed and he died um, of tuberculosis. So and then no attempts to contact the family, uh, no attempts to sort of seek outside medical care. Um, there's even there's one instance where uh, a family knew their child was sick and dying at the school and they wanted to take him home and at least see him or, you know, potentially try to care for him. And they were, they were blocked in that. They were saying, no, he's, he's safer in our, uh, you know, negligent hands than, than with you. The other issue you touch on, and you quote the, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for much of their history, Canadian residential schools operated beyond the reach of fire regulations. And so this was another issue that, that was common at a lot of schools, that, that these were, in terms of the, the fire risk, the, these were dangerous places. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a few instances uh, where, you know, uh, the entire school would burn down and you'd have just mass casualties uh, in one incident. Uh, not, again, not too long ago. I mean, if you have grandparents, they would have been alive at the time when this was this was occurring. They probably would have been in school at the time this was occurring. Um, uh, I think the 19, 1927, there was one that killed 19. And then the next year, you have another fire at a residential school that killed 12. Uh, so you're seeing pretty routine major fires. And and again, this is this is well known. This is um, this is inspectors saying um, you know this is you have a wood shop uh, that's just tinder dry, and there's absolutely no way to put it out, and that's right next to the dormitory. I mean, this is this is a terrible idea. And then a principal will say, well, it's not a big big deal, or you know, any request for upgrades will be denied by the Department of Indian Affairs. So that's that's what's so uh, chilling about a lot of this is that it was well known at the time. So. Maybe the general public didn't really know the full extent, but certainly there were higher-ups within the government all the way up to the cabinet um, who knew what was going on, that death rates were high, um, that you know certain funding uh, was being rejected. Uh, so, yeah, the, the worst details of the system um, were pretty well known to anybody uh, in power who wanted to look for them. Um, but uh, again, you also see um, this sort of pattern of indifference or this this kind of like ends justify the means. OK, we know right. it's bad, but uh, we have to do this. And of course, and, and, you know, the experience of Kamloops is a reminder of this, that not only did children die, but that the school where they died became their final resting place. What, why were children being buried in graves at the schools instead of being returned to their families? So uh, in the in, uh, in the early days, and again, uh, this is so the the estimate from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that between 3,200 and potentially as high as 6,000 children died uh, while attending a residential school. And then I guess the the reason given 
um, for uh, most of the burials being on site was just purely expense. I mean, that's, uh, I wish there was a better reason that had been given, but they just said it's too expensive to ship them back to their home communities, so we're just going to bury them here. And often cases, um, they were in on marked graves, and then these cemeteries, uh, when they shut, ended up shutting down the schools, they just forgot about the cemetery. So, I mean, the 215 at Kamloops, uh, in Kamloops has, has really sort of um, captured national and international attention, but this has happened before. Um, Battleford mm-hmm. Industrial School back in the 1970s um, was a similar thing. There were students saying, you know, there's a giant uh, cemetery there that everybody forgot about, just filled with kids that never came home. And we, you know, they were, they, whose deaths were not never recorded or the records were lost. And uh, back in the 1970s, an archaeological dig went out and found the graves of 75 children. 75 children at one school. And these were not massive schools. Uh, these these could have, you know, in, in one, I mean, Kamloops was one of the the largest in Canada at some point. And still, you're looking at two, three hundred uh, kids at a time. Uh, so that's just an incredibly large cemetery. So there's there's quite a few. There's been other uh, ground radar surveys. They haven't been as large as what was found in Kamloops. But, um, yeah, you'll, you'll routinely look around the ground for one of these things, and you'll see evidence of a dozen, 30, 40, um, I mean, Massive cemetery, considering you're talking about children at a relatively small school. Well, it's a harrowing, but an important read uh, at NationalPost.com, why so many children died at Indian residential schools. Tristan Hopper, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Tristan Hopper uh, with the National Post, NationalPost.com. So an important piece uh, from him from over the weekend, still up at NationalPost.com. And, and looking into this question in a lot more detail why so many children died at uh, Indian residential schools. Yes, you know, we're talking about an era where child deaths were sadly more common. But the rate of death at these schools was far higher than the rate in the general public. So that does not begin to explain what was happening here. Not just that kids died, but how this was all handled. Were these deaths recorded? Were the families made aware? Did they have an opportunity Uh, to bury their children. The government's hotel quarantine program is uh, back in the spotlight. There was an expert advisory panel last week that urged the federal government uh, to abandon the mandatory hotel quarantine, that we could have different uh, testing and screening rules in place depending on the vaccination status uh, of those traveling to or returning to Canada. Uh, But in any event, they say we don't need the mandatory hotel quarantine. So it's the question of whether this approach makes sense. Look, obviously, we've not done a great job when it comes to border security in this pandemic and keeping the virus out and keeping virus variants out of the country. So there's, there's a policy conversation here, but there's also some legal issues at play as well. When it comes to the government's power to to have a system like this and the the manner in which it affects those who who have to navigate this system, the Canadian Constitution Foundation has been uh, challenging the government in court over its mandatory hotel quarantine, uh, and they've achieved a bit of a victory here as as this battle continues. Now, this involves uh, those traveling for compassionate reasons. So joining us to talk more about uh, where things stand and what this particular victory represents, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Christine Van Gein, who is the uh, litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation, the CCF.ca is the website. Christine, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me on. Obviously, this legal case that you've been involved in is, is about much more than, than just those who travel for compassionate reasons. So t- tell us a bit, first of all, about kind of what the, the overall arguments here that, that you're making in court. So this case was really about compassionate travel, but it's also about the, the notion of our Section 6 rights in general, which is your your Charter Section 6 protected right to enter, uh, remain in, and leave Canada, and whether or not the $2,000 requirement is an infringement on that right. We argue that it is an infringement. It's an unjustified infringement. Um, it, in our case, all of our applicants were traveling for compassionate reasons. We thought that it was a good idea to use compassionate travelers because it's a sympathetic story, right? These were all people who were traveling because they needed to attend um, the end of life of a, a parent or to go to a funeral. Or in, in the case of one of our applicants, he lives in the United States. His wife, or he lives in Canada. His wife lives in the United States. She wants to move to Canada, hasn't been approved yet, but she requires surgery in the United States. He wants to go to the United States to be with her to help her recover from her surgery, but they can't afford um, this $2,000 plus cost of a quarantine hotel. Um, because of the victory that we achieved today, which is now all of these people can apply for exemptions, these individuals will be able to travel without having to stay in the quarantine hotel. And I'll note that people who were traveling into Canada for compassionate reasons, so say you were in the United States and wanted to come to Canada to attend to a funeral, mm-hmm. that you could apply for an exemption for. You always had that exemption. But the government did not give an exemption for people going the other direction, which in our view was irrational and arbitrary. So we've we've now achieved an amendment to the law because of this challenge. Um, and we think it's a great victory that's going to impact all of these compassionate travels in a really positive way. Yeah, that, that this seems pretty reasonable under the circumstances. So it, it, it's not an automatic exemption then? It, it's still something that people have to apply for individually? You will have to apply for it. So if you need to leave Canada for one of these compassionate reasons, you need to apply with the government. Um, if you want information about it, you can visit our website, the ccf.ca, and the information is linked in our press release. But we're also still pursuing the main application um, because there have been a lot of people who traveled and they they traveled for a compassionate reason and they paid for these hotels. Um, you know, it's, it's quite unfair that um, if your if your mother died dies next week versus last week, it's going to cost you two thousand dollars to go to the funeral um, last week. But next week, it's you don't have to pay for that quarantine hotel um, and you're able to attend as well as, you know, the damage to people who may have forgone travel to see the, their loved one at the end of their life or missed a funeral of a loved one. That's an irreparable harm. Like you can never get that harm back if you chose or or were forced to choose not to go because you did not have the financial resources to pay for the hotel. So we're still proceeding with our main application which will be heard on June 28th, to help recover the cost um, for our applicants who did have to travel. Um, and anyone who's not an applicant, we encourage them, um, if, even if you're not involved in our case, we encourage you to contact our lawyer because he um, he can talk to you about what your rights are and, and if you may have some ability to recover that money. Now, well, I think individual Canadians can sympathize with this sort of travel. I mean, I guess the point is, right, that the the virus doesn't care and the federal government's maintaining that it's doing what it needs to do uh, to protect Canadians, to to keep the virus out or to keep variants out. This is part of our our public health strategy. So how do you respond to that then? 
I, I respond by saying we have a constitutionally protected right to enter our country um, and that the cost is preventative. It's preventing people from returning home um, to their country. And, you know, in Canada, you can limit charter rights. Um, Section one of the charter allows us to limit rights when the limits are, are justified. In our view, this is not a justified limit, especially because of the cost. Um, I think one of the things your listeners may not know is that if if you come into Canada and you stay in one of these hotels, the idea is you wait in the hotel and you find out if you have COVID or not. But if you do have COVID, do you know what the result is? Do you know what they do with you? In almost every case, they send you home to quarantine in your home. So if if positive and, tra- and negative travelers both simply are released from the hotels to go home, what is this policy actually achieving? It's, it's insane to me that we have a policy where that is the outcome. And, and you paid $2,000 um, or more, depending on the size of your family, just to wait and, and have the exact same results at the outcome, whether you're negative or positive. Do, do you think, though, then, that it would be a different conversation, constitutionally speaking, if th- there were not costs imposed on, on travelers? If this was something that the government said, look, this is where you need to quarantine, yeah, we're covering the cost, but, but this is how it's got to be, would it be different? It would, of course, be a different constitutional case. I think it still engages, um, it less engages maybe your Section 6, right, but it still engages your Section 9, right, which is to be free from arbitrary detention. Um, and and um, it could also engage your security of person and um, rights because, as we know, some people have not been fed adequately at these facilities. One woman was sexually assaulted. And, of course, it engages your Section 7 liberty interest, so your your um right to be free and unimpeded by the government. So it may have less of an impact on Section 6, although I think it, it still could if if um, if your concern is being in one of these quarantine hotels uh, because of the risk of actually contracting COVID in one of these facilities. Uh, there have been about six outbreaks in facilities across Canada um, in these in these quarantine hotels. So a lot of people might say, you know, I'm afraid to even come back to Canada because um, even if it's free, there's a risk I could actually get COVID in one of these facilities designed to keep me safe. Um, so, you know, you can you can take away the cost and there's still issues with the facilities. Do you think it affects the government's case at all, this this expert uh, advisory panel report that came out last week? And, and they're looking at it strictly from a, a policy side, a public health side. Uh, you know, th- these are leading you know medical experts saying, we probably don't need the mandatory hotel quarantine, that there are much better ways uh, to do this. Do you think that's going to have an impact? Yes, I think it absolutely has an impact. Um, We actually got the report last week on Thursday evening, and we had cross-examinations on Friday. So we were able to put the expert report to um, some of the medical experts that we were cross-examining. And, um, you know, I think it's devastating to the government's case. To be honest, I think that that report does incredible damage to the policy um, and the fact that the government has still continued to have it in place in the face of advice from their own experts saying we should repeal this policy is, is very damaging. So what's the next step here? Where does this all go from here? So our next step is we are continuing the hearing, which will take place on June 28th, and then we will wait for a result. Um, There are other cases proceeding. There is a federal court case that's being heard tomorrow, brought by another organization, uh, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. 
they have a broader case than our case. So uh, I'll be watching with a lot of interest that case over the next, um, it's going to be tomorrow, um, Wednesday, tomorrow, Tuesday, sorry, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'll be watching. Um, And then there's another case brought in Quebec as well. So I'm I'm following all of these closely. Um, Whoever gets the result first uh, depends on which judge writes his reasons, his or her reasons the fastest. Um, uh, We could have a result um, in any of these cases in the next coming weeks or months. All right, very interesting. Again, much more on all of this, theccf.ca. Christine, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All best. Christine Van Gein is a litigation director with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So if you want to read more on this case and the work they're doing, and as she said earlier, they, they do still want to hear from people who may have been in this this kind of a situation. So it's the T-H-E, theccf.ca. And we're going to be speaking tomorrow. We weren't able to get to her Friday uh, because of what happened at the health committee. But uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, health critic for the conservatives, will join us. We'll get their reaction to this expert advisory panel report last week and what the response needs to be going forward when it comes to dealing with those returning to Canada. This panel report says that we don't need the mandatory hotel quarantine, that we can have different systems in place depending on the vaccination status. Uh, of those arriving in or returning to Canada, which I think makes sense uh, on an individual level. It is bizarre that fully vaccinated individuals who have tested negative already still have to fork out money to go into this hotel quarantine. So the victory achieved here by the Canadian Constitution Foundation is that for those traveling for compassionate reasons, there's the opportunity to apply for this exemption. It was really interesting what she noted is that for, you know, an American coming here for those compassionate reasons, it would be easier for them to avoid the uh, hotel quarantine than it would be for a Canadian who goes to the U.S. for a funeral and then returns home. That makes no sense. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. So we talked about this recently. There's been a real frenzy in the media as of late with regard to UFOs. The idea maybe that the U.S. government knows more than it's letting on, maybe other world governments, and that we're kind of at a tipping point here and and all of this is about to break loose. Now, the conversation we had recently was was about who's advancing these claims and sort of the history of some of these uh, UFO enthusiasts. But There's another side to this, and it's the videos. It's one thing to hear someone make a claim about something they saw or something they claimed to know. But when we can see it for ourselves, it feels more compelling. And some of these uh, videos that have leaked or been released, the Pentagon has confirmed as real, seem to show U.S. pilots encountering some very strange things. So what do we make of all of this? Well, someone who's been following all of this very closely, had a great piece this week at uh, usatoday.com, is Mick West. He's an author, researcher, debunker. Uh, His latest book called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. More at mickwest.com, also metabunk.org. Mick, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, as, as long as we've had film and pictures, you know, cameras, we've had images that, that seem strange. And, and images, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, our, our mind goes maybe to, to what we want to see. You know, technology, video technology is supposed to be better today. We've got all these great cameras. How much has changed, though, when it comes to the conversation around UFO videos? 
Well, like you say, the cameras have actually changed quite a bit. Like they've got a lot more powerful and a lot more higher resolution. Uh, but what hasn't changed is the quality of the images. It almost seems like somehow the uh, the more powerful the camera you get, the further away the UFOs tend to get. Uh, what's happened recently, though, is that we've got a few of these uh, blurry, low-quality videos that kind of have this stamp of approval on them because they were taken by U.S. Navy personnel and the Navy uh, confirmed that they were taken. And so people look at these videos as being some kind of special evidence. Right. Not just that they're confirmed as, as legitimate videos, but that the military can't explain them. So the combination of the two really increases the expectation, right, that we're, we're seeing something unusual, we're seeing maybe even something historic, perhaps at some level. So already our, our perception is kind of shaped going into it, isn't it? Yeah, but what you've got to recognize, though, is that the military actually hasn't said that they can't explain them. In fact, the, the military has said remarkably little about these these videos. All they've really done is that they've confirmed that they were taken by Navy personnel, and they said that they were part of the UAP task force's uh, consideration, which just simply means that at one point in history uh, of these videos, they were actually unidentified. It doesn't mean that the, they could not analyze them and they couldn't figure it out. And in fact, they've said that uh, since it's a classified subject, the, the type of camera that was used, that probably wouldn't actually tell you even if they did figure it out. Right. And I think it was actually maybe a lot of this came from uh, former President Barack Obama. Right. And, and you noted this in your piece. He did an interview recently where that was his answer. He said, yeah. Yeah, there's these videos. Basically, we, we don't know what's on them. And I think that that got a lot of people's attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, obviously, though, when you have thousands of videos, some of them are going to be showing things that are simply too far away to identify. Just because something can't be identified in a video doesn't mean it's doing something special. But what's happening is people are taking these videos and they're making claims about them that they do actually show something special. And in fact, when you look at the videos, they do actually look quite amazing, some of them. One of them looks like it's showing a, a flying saucer, which flies over the clouds and turns sideways. Another one looks like it shows a flying triangle. But when you get down to the nitty gritty and you actually analyze these videos and kind of go frame by frame and do the math and research what the, the camera, they actually all seem to have fairly reasonable, plausible explanations, uh, each one a different one, but none of them actually requires some kind of advanced technology or aliens to explain them. Yeah, and, and I've, I've watched some of your videos and, and it's interesting, you know, the the perception you have coming out of all of that, because I, I think, as I alluded to earlier, maybe at some level we we kind of want it to be that. Mm -hmm. We want to believe we're, we're witnessing, uh, you know, something amazing uh, because the mundane is just that. It's, it's boring. But let's talk about some of these videos that have really captured people's attention, not just the shapes of some of these objects, like the pyramid-shaped ones in, in one of the videos, but just this idea, this notion that Whatever this is, is you know, defying the laws of physics. It's traveling at high speeds, moving in strange yeah. directions. But is, is any of that actually happening? Uh, well, it looks like it's happening, and that's the thing. It kind of fools you into thinking it's happening. But there's, there's one of the videos, for example, which is called Go Fast, which appears to show uh, an object that shows up as with no visible heat source in it, no visible, uh, say, jet exhaust or anything like that. And yet it's moving at two-thirds the speed of sound, which would be you know, impossible with uh, with current technology. 
But that particular video, if you do the math on it, and it's only 10th grade trigonometry, it's not very complicated. You could probably find a high schooler to do it if you can't do it yourself. Uh, you can actually figure out how high it is, and it's not actually skimming over the surface of the ocean. And then you can figure out how fast it's going. And it turns out it's actually moving at about wind speed. And a cold object moving at wind speed means it's uh, almost certainly a balloon and probably a weather balloon. The other interesting aspect is a lot of these videos are, are taken with night vision, and so everything's reversed. Mm -hmm. so what we think is a, is a black object is, is actually something very bright, for example. What appears to be an object that's moving might actually be the camera moving. So there, there's a lot of technical elements to these videos that, if, if not properly understood, obviously can yeah. create very different perceptions. Yeah, very much so. Most of the videos you see a black object which kind of makes you think it's a real physical object, but the, the image is actually inverted. These thermal cameras, they can, they can display things with white being hot or black being hot. Uh, so you've got to think of the image in reverse and really, really what you're looking at in, in these, especially in the, the flying saucer uh, uh, video called Gimbal, is it's just a glare. It's a very, very bright light because you're looking at the, the engines, which are super, super hot of some kind of craft that's in the distance. It creates this big glare, like, like if you point your camera at the sun, you don't get an image of the sun. You get a much bigger glare than the, the object itself. Uh, and the rotation of that glare is probably, well, it's almost certainly an artifact of the camera because we know the camera has to rotate at certain points and the points that it rotates at match the specifications of the camera and the type of rotation is just what you would expect if it was, uh, if it was actually a glare. That's interesting. I know the believers will say that, look, these are experienced pilots, and you know, mm -hmm. sometimes we've heard their voices on these videos, and they're a little baffled by what they're seeing. They see weather balloons all the time. They see other airplanes all the time. Why would they be unsure of what they're seeing? Sure. Well, they, they're actually looking essentially at the same thing that we're looking at. Uh, because these cameras are so powerful and they're, they're fully zoomed in, it's, it's really the same as like a, a 100 times zoom, uh, say, on your cam on your phone camera. If you could zoom in 100 times instead of just the two to, two to four times that you can normally, you can see things that are really, really far away. And you, they can't actually see it with the naked eye. So they're just seeing the video that we're seeing. And so you get the same kind of optical illusions. So the GoFast video looks like it's moving really fast. And the Gimbal video looks like it's a flying saucer and it looks like it's rotating. Uh, so it could just be that, you know, these pilots haven't seen this exact situation before. I'm sure they've seen uh, things like weather balloons before, but uh, getting the glare lined up at exactly the right angle as we have here, just might, it might have been the first time that they saw it. What about the one it, it, where it's it, it's an object that's there's at least it seems as though it's it's moving rapidly side to side, changing directions quickly, and then it appears at the end like it goes down into the water, and I think there's a claim from one of the pilots that it, it splashed down. Which which yeah. one is that? That is the Omaha Sphere video, and okay. what what it appears to show is an object descending very very slowly it's not actually moving left and right because it looks in the video like it's moving left and right. But if you actually uh, look at the ocean surface, you see that the ocean surface moves at the same time as the object moving, which means what's moving here again is just the camera. So the person controlling the camera, they have a little joystick that moves it uh, left and right, is trying to follow this object, trying to lock onto this object. And so they, they kind of have to chase after it. And that makes it look like it's moving around 
on the screen, but it's not. And it's actually moving very, very slowly down towards the surface of the of the water. And it kind of looks at first like it splashes down in the water and it, uh, it goes underwater. But if you analyze the video very carefully and you zoom in uh, at the moment where it disappears, you see it kind of fades away instead of uh, instead of like disappearing behind something. So that kind of implies that again, it's actually an infrared glare and it's just being gradually obscured by the horizon. So it's not actually going underwater. It's not moving very fast. It's just simply descending and then going behind the horizon. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there may be some some important issues that underlie all of this, and, and it's easy for folks to get sidetracked into conversations around UFOs. I mean, if there are drones that are, you know, causing issues in, in the skies or even, you know, Chinese or Russian drones that happen to be in American airspace, that there's there's some legitimate issues here. I don't know what's... I mean, we're supposed to be getting some kind of report on this in June. I don't know what that's going to tell us. But wh- where does this conversation go from here? And it's obviously been clouded by a lot of this this frenzy. But wh- what are the important issues here as you see it? Well, I think uh, there are very real issues here. In fact, there are issues of national security. Because if there are incursions into our airspace, uh, we need to know what's actually going on. And if there are only apparent incursions into our airspace, we need to figure out what's going on wrong, what's going wrong with our system. We need to figure out why pilots see things when they aren't there. And if they are there, we need to figure out what those things are. It's entirely possible that uh, a foreign power is uh, is testing testing our defenses by uh, launching drones from submarines, for example, and then having them fly over ships. This is certainly something that's entirely possible that might be happening. So we really need to look into that. But I think we also need to not get distracted uh, by the kind of the ridiculous nature of some of the claims that have been made about things being uh, warp drives or even uh, even alien technology, because there really isn't any good evidence. Uh, that there's anything physics defying going on. So I think we need to focus on the very real issues and uh, spend less time on the somewhat silly issues. Now, part of this might just be, you know, the the average citizen's impulse to to want to believe in in UFOs. But how much is this being driven by, you know, others with with different agendas? Or what's your sense of how this just kind of seemed to explode as an issue in, in the last few weeks? Yes, it's it's kind of a culmination of quite a long process that uh, has been going on for for many for decades. Even there there are people within government who like the UFO uh, story, and they actually think that UFOs represent something significant, possibly aliens, and they want to work towards uh, revealing that. Uh, you, you go back to Harry Reid, uh, former Senator Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader uh, from Nevada. He uh, he got into UFOs via one of his friends back in uh, 1996 and has been kind of a UFO fan ever, ever since. And a lot of the stuff that has happened has happened because of Harry Reid's involvement and the involvement of his friend Rob Bigelow and uh, a Nevada journalist uh, called called George Knapp, who is also one of the people who is leaking uh, the the last two videos, the, the, the Pyramid video and the... Um, the, the Omaha Sphere video kind of came to George Knapp. So there's this kind of group of people, a very small group of people really, who have kind of fingers in government and fingers in uh, in the entertainment industry who are kind of uh, pushing this narrative. And I think it's largely because they believe it to be true. 
Very interesting. We'll leave it there. Much more is mentioned. McWest.com. Mick, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. There you go. That is uh, author, researcher, Mick West, McWest.com. M-I-C-K-W-E-S-T. His uh, most recent book is mentioned, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. And uh, you can find uh, many of his videos uh, on YouTube going through and you know making these, these important observations about what we're actually seeing on these videos. And in some cases, recreating these uh, visual effects that seem so compelling. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. So this week, starting tomorrow, stage one of Alberta's reopening. And that's going to, on, on the sporting side of things, uh, see some outdoor organized activity resume. By the time we get to stage two, which could be as early as June 10th, uh, that's going to expand significantly. We're going to see a return of uh, indoor sports as well. So things are certainly moving in the right direction when it comes to both the return to sporting activity uh, and an easing of other restrictions. So perhaps Canada is well poised now to see a rebound in sport tourism. Obviously, that's taken a huge hit uh, over the last 14 months. You know, both in terms of uh, larger events uh, and, and even the smaller events. There just really hasn't been any of that happening. Uh, so the group Sport Tourism Canada has been doing some work to lay the groundwork for all of this. In terms of uh, how ready Canada is uh, for sport tourism to bounce back. How important it is that it bounce back and uh, what we need to do uh, to make that a reality. Much more at sporttourismcanada.com. Uh, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, where things stand, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Grant McDonald. Uh, he is Chief Operating Officer with Sport Tourism Canada. Grant, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. So we talk about sport tourism, the sport tourism industry, and you know that that encount, you know encompasses a lot, doesn't it? I mean, there's there's the bigger events that people are aware of, but you know even right down to the uh, you know the lo- local hockey tournament, right? This all kind of falls under that umbrella, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's something that really has come to light is just how deep uh, the impacts have been to sport hosting uh, and sport tourism in Canada uh, from the local levels and the inter-community competitions uh, right up to the international level uh, with examples of uh, the NHL bubble in Edmonton and the uh, Calgary curling bubble, which uh, has successfully concluded uh, here just in the past couple of weeks. So what's your sense of, of where we're at right now? Because it feels like, you know, we're potentially at a, at a turning point here that, that things are maybe ready to bounce back. But what's your sense? Yeah, we've spent the last 14 months really responding to this crisis and trying to see just how impactful it has been. Uh, we do know that local sport organizations up to provincial and national organizations uh, rely on the financial revenues from sport events that they host from an invitational tournament that takes place in your local uh, community recreation facility right up to those national and international competitions. So uh, we do know that financially uh, there is a need for uh, sport to be hosted safely and responsibly, uh, but we do know that uh, there's a demand out there, and we've seen it on our televisions uh, we've seen it in other countries, and we're really trying to work with everybody from the community level up to the national level so that everybody can get back to hosting sport events that are so important to our economies as well as to the social fabric of our communities. 
Yeah, we'll talk a bit more about that side of it. Uh, just, just how important is this industry? How big is this industry? It's, uh, it's big, and it hasn't been uh, known as an industry until about uh, a little more than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a $6.8 billion industry in Canada, and uh, Alberta makes up about uh, 11% of that industry in terms of annual spending. That spending is in our local businesses, uh, from hotels to restaurants to gas and retail, uh, and it is in every community in this country. It may not be known as sport tourism, but we all know that we've attended events uh, with our children. Uh, we've gone yeah. to see events in our communities, and they really bring our communities to life uh, and engage our population uh, socially. So, I mean, it's, you know, in terms of the, the restrictions that, that still exist, right, it's it's kind of twofold because we've got some limitations around competitive sport. And then on top of that, we've obviously got the, the restrictions that exist around travel. So in order for sport tourism to respond, I mean, it really does mean a, a, being able to address both of them, doesn't it? It does. And, and what we've heard from uh, the research that we've done with local, provincial and national sport organizations is that everybody's looking for clarity in order to understand uh, what the risks are, financial and otherwise, uh, and safety risks of returning to hosting their local competitions right up to their invitational and provincial and national championships. What we really need to do is, with that clarity, we need to build some sustainable ways for local tournaments uh, up to national and international championships to be able to operate uh, based on the restrictions during the various phases. So everybody has learned to adapt over the last 14, 15 months. And I think when we return to sport event hosting, Uh, that adaptation is going to need to continue because um, some venues, some communities may have different restrictions uh, that others do not. So we want to make sure that everybody has the tools in order to plan and deliver uh, safe and successful sport events so that our communities and our local businesses are able to reap the rewards. Yeah, and you know we're seeing these conversations happening. I mean, obviously they're trying to to you know pull off the Olympics in Tokyo coming up uh, this summer. The NHL's trying to figure out how they'll be able to do cross border series uh, coming up uh, in in the semifinals. The Calgary Stampede obviously wants to ensure that rodeo athletes can uh, make their way to Calgary this summer. So you know, we're seeing the conversation happen in in a lot of different contexts. But in in order, you know, I mean, as you say, we've ha- we've had the bubble experiences, the curling more recently, the the NHL last year, but. In terms of the kind of events that can really benefit a community, benefit local businesses, it's got to be more than just that, doesn't it? It it does. Uh, Because the uh, local community tournaments uh, and invitational events are really the lifeblood of many communities across this country, and those funds that are generated from those events are... Uh, supporting the financial operation of a lot of our local sport organizations. Those sport organizations contribute greatly to the social development of our youth, as well as the uh, inclusion of residents in community life. So uh, sport events are so much more than just about business. It really is something that needs a broad uh, approach to ensure that we are 
able to come back stronger so that events are able to uh, achieve greater impacts in the future than they might have uh, prior to COVID-19. So are we likely to see, you know, almost like baby steps or kind of a phase in, you know, to start with smaller and maybe more localized events, provincial or regional, and then sort of work our way up to some of these bigger events? Absolutely. We do know that people will feel most comfortable traveling closer to home, uh, so local uh, and then regional and provincial before they will travel interprovincial and even internationally. So what uh, sport events can do is also to help rebuild some of the confidence that has been lost. Uh, some people are uh, do have some um, discomfort with um, going out into public spaces or mass gatherings. And really, this is about restoring confidence as much as it is about restoring uh, the business that is generated from sport event hosting. And and I suppose, too, I mean, Alberta's got its plan. Other provinces have their plans. So if, if provinces are sort of moving on their own timeline, that's something that's going to have to be factored in as well, right? It is, and that's part of that ad- adaptive recovery yeah. that I mentioned, is that, it, and, and it could... Um, it could change midstream. And that's one thing that we've learned throughout the last 15 months is that if there's one thing for sure, it's it's going to change. And we need to make sure that we've got those other plans uh, and we're prepared for what may happen because uh, some of those things inevitably will. And we just want to make sure that everybody from the local community uh, sporting club up to the provincial and national sport organizations have the information that they need to plan effectively and then deliver those events that are going to contribute to our communities and to our provinces. All right. Well, much more, as mentioned, sporttourismcanada.com. And I think things are headed in the right direction here. Grant, thanks so much for making some time for us this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thanks for the opportunity, Rob. All the best. Grant McDonald is Chief Operating Officer with Sport Tourism Canada. Uh, so they've been engaged in some pretty serious uh, survey work, getting a sense of where stakeholder groups, provinces, municipalities, where everybody's at, and how we can start to move forward. And I mean, it'll be great to see the return of these kinds of events. You know, and this has been badly missed over the last uh, 14 months or so. So it's interesting to think about how we get back to that, and, and maybe it is sort of in, in baby steps, but uh, I think we're, we're a lot closer to that point, and so that's exciting. So again, sporttourismcanada.com. I mean, while speaking of the NHL, it does sound as though uh, things are getting closer to uh, an agreement to ensure that the conference finals, the semifinals, or the final four, whatever we're going to call it, uh, can go ahead as planned. So it, it appears as though the Canadian government and the provinces, obviously, it's only going to be one province that, that has the final decision to make on that. And, um, well, it's not Alberta, unfortunately. Either Manitoba, Ontario, or Quebec will be the relevant jurisdiction, whichever team comes out of the North Division. Uh, but essentially, it will allow for an exemption for both the uh, U.S.-based team to come into Canada and for the Canadian team to go play into, in the United States and then return. So there will be no mandatory quarantine, uh, but there are going to be some strict criteria when it comes to how this all works. And it's not going to be quite the bubble like we saw last summer. But in terms of the, the travel and the limitations, it's, it's going to be something close to that. 
Obviously, daily testing is going to be a huge part, but, you know, it sounds as though we're going to get maybe some kind of a formal announcement sometime this week. Of course, uh, after tonight, we'll be one step closer to knowing which Canadian team it's going to be coming out of the North. The Winnipeg Jets are waiting in the wings for either the Montreal Canadiens or the Toronto Maple Leafs. That Game 7 goes this evening. Now, you might have heard this as well. Of course, it was quite something to see the 2,500 fans back in attendance at the game Saturday in Montreal. And coming off the heels of that and going into Game 7, you knew there was going to be some pressure, some conversation about, well, there's got to be people in the building in Toronto. How can you come off the heels of that and not come up with something for Game 7 in Toronto? Now, initially, there was a proposal to allow fully vaccinated healthcare workers to be in attendance. That was rejected only for the Ontario government uh, to, to double back and say, on second thought, actually, we think this is a pretty good idea. So there will be fans in the building tonight for Game 7 in Toronto. More here from Global News Radio's Brianna Carnegie. It's a... Sound that some frontline healthcare workers will hear in person tonight. Ontario is allowing 550 fully vaccinated heroes inside Scotiabank Arena to cheer on the Leafs for Game 7. And although Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown's proposal of 2,500 fans was rejected, he is pleased with this move. What a beautiful opportunity to safely recognize our healthcare heroes who have sacrificed so much over the last year. Yes, free tickets and a jersey is pretty good, but the ultimate thank you to these heroes would be hearing this song at the end of tonight's game. What I want Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Well, not sure about that last part, but um, yeah, it'll be good to see some folks in the building tonight. It's not quite the same as where things are at in the U.S. And maybe by the time we get to to the Final Four, maybe we'll be a little bit closer to that. But to see the packed house in Boston yesterday and uh, Vegas on uh, Saturday night or Friday night, yeah, that's, that's quite something to see. So 550 in attendance tonight, that's that's a step in the right direction. I mean, part of the wrinkle here going forward is that, you know, as much as things have improved in Ontario and Quebec, uh, things are not good at the moment in Manitoba. So if it ends up being Winnipeg is the Canadian representative, that could change the conversation a little bit. But um, we'll find out. We'll see who comes out of that uh, Montreal-Toronto series. And man, imagine if the Leafs find a way to blow this. You know, given their recent history, especially their recent history when it comes to those closeout games, that's that's bad. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.